Good morning again, everyone. Today we continue our series in the book of Colossians. And as I mentioned to you last week, in typical style, the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Colossians. In the first half of the book, dealing with theological issues. And then the second part of the book, dealing with more practical issues with the Christian life. Also, we saw that in our last section last week that Paul explained the source of our sanctification is our union with Christ. The source of our sanctification, the source of how we grow and live for Christ is found in our union with Christ. It is not found in following religious rules and regulations like do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. No, the source of our sanctification is found in the coronation of Christ when he took his seat at the right hand of the Father far above all rule, all authority, all power, and all dominion, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What we see is that when Christ took his seat at the right hand of the Father, when the exalted Christ was enthroned in heaven, there was a declaration made that he has all power, all dominion, all authority. Not only in a spiritual realm, but in your life practically. In the situations that you face, the tendencies that are challenging to you, possibly even addictions that seek to overcome you. Christ is seated on high. Therefore, he has all, all rule, all power, all dominion. And we should seek him because we are one with him. Amen? It's clear that to, that to the, the Colossians that our obedience to Christ, it's not a duty. Paul writes in this letter, our obedience to Christ is not a duty, but rather our obedience to Christ is an act of worship. Our sanctification is found in worshiping Christ more and more as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in every dimension of our lives. When I say an act of worship, I'm not talking about singing hymns or praise songs unto the Lord, even though that is an act of worship. What I'm talking about is living our lives, really seeking Christ more and more in His reign and His rule in our lives more and more. So after laying this foundation of our sanctification in the previous text, we see that now Paul focuses his attention on living for Christ at home and at work. These are the places we spend the majority of our time. These are the people we spend the majority of our time with, our spouse, our children, and our work associates. So Paul teaches us how to live for Christ in chapter, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Wives, be subject to your husband, husbands that is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your, your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who are merely pleased men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather 
than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive a reward of an inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. That finishes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. So we see that God has ordained marriage and family to be the foundation of all society. Now theologians call marriage a creation ordinance. What that means is that God instituted marriage prior to the fall of Adam. Therefore, marriage is something to be held in honor by all people, every society. There's basically three creation ordinances. We have the ordinance of work, we have the ordinance of rest, and we have the ordinance of marriage. We see that these are three things that people across the board should implement into their lives. So this morning's text, Paul addresses each participant in the marriage and family relationship Uh, telling them a short and concise way that distinguishes a Christian marriage and a Christian family from the others that are in the world. Now Paul begins with the Christian wife when he writes, Wives, be subject to to your husbands as is fitting unto the Lord. At this point I know that I have lost the majority of the women in the room. I know that once a woman hears this idea, uh, husband, uh, wives be subject to your husbands, they immediately become deaf and uh, don't want to hear any more. Now, <clears throat> the whole idea of a woman must be submissive to her husband has been exploited for, for centuries. Now, anyone who interprets this verse or any others like it to imply that the Bible is giving the husbands license to be a domestic dictator lording himself over his wife and that she is to be a slave ordered to fulfill his every command, well, those people are teaching a lie. That type of teaching is inconsistent with what the Bible teaches about the relationship between a husband and a wife. Remember the marriage equation that I've shared with you many times. One plus one equals one. One plus one equals one. We see at the very beginning, the first editorial comment found in the scriptures is that the two shall become one flesh. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one one flesh. We see that neither the husband or the wife surrenders their individuality in marriage, but rather they form a new identity within the marriage union. The Bible teaches that in the Lord there is neither neither the woman is independent of man nor the man independent of woman. The idea is we're formed together in union. We're not independent from one another. One plus one equals one. 
So let me take a few minutes to explain from Scripture what this verse means. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. First of all, when you look at Scripture, God's Word tells us clearly that there is no distinction between men and women in the eyes of God. The Apostle Peter tells a husband to honor his wife as, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir of the grace of life. And the Apostle Paul, even though he usually gets a bad rap, has clearly stated that there is neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So, we have to ask ourselves, well, what's going on here in this verse, wives be subject to their husbands? If the Bible teaches that men and women, husbands and wives, are equal, then how can the apostle tell wives to be submissive to their husbands? Some say that that's a contradiction. Well, on the surface, I can understand how someone might come to that conclusion or ask these type of questions but let me simply say that there is more to the story. Not trying to become technical here, but it's my job to tell you that the form of the verb in this text, be subject, is in the middle voice, which shows this submission is voluntary. Voluntary. The wife's submission is never to be forced on her by a demanding husband. The Bible is consistent in telling that God created a divine order in marriage and family by ordaining husbands as the head of the relationship. Why? Because man is the firstborn. Now, it's not because men are smarter or more talented or better leaders. And all the sisters in the church say, Amen. Amen. It's be, it was, but it's because Adam was created first, then Eve. Listen, a woman can be a doctor, a lawyer, a president, or a prime minister. No problem. But even if she becomes the president, if she, she's not the firstborn, she's not the firstborn. I have an older brother, and therefore he is the firstborn. I'm far more sp smarter and talented and more handsome than he is. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Everybody knows it. Everybody in the family says it. That's a joke. But the fact is, he's the firstborn. Therefore, when my parents passed away, he, he took the lead. Why? Not because he's smarter or more talented than I am, but because I respected the order. He's the firstborn. And that's simply what's going on here. Man is the firstborn. And, and we see that within marriage and family that it should reflect God's created order and God's created design. But let me just go a little bit deeper here. The apostle wrote to the Philippians, 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, I've never heard a Christian that had a problem with the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ. Never heard a Christian have a problem with that. The fact is that Christ Jesus existed in the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God, something that he had to hold on to, but he willingly, voluntarily emptied himself and humbled himself to be submissive to the Father's will Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Amen? And we glory in the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ. Because through Christ being submissive to his Father, we receive redemption. But notice that Paul began that text in Philippians saying, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. You see... Even though the Father and Christ were equal, the divine order and design is that the Father is the head of Christ. And so it is that a husband and wife are equal. No doubt about it. But the the divine order and design is that the man is the head of the woman within the marriage relationship. And notice this, this, that marriage is, how a woman follows through with this is understanding that this is an act of worship. Notice, wives be subject to your husband. What's the last part of the verse? For this is fitting to the Lord. If you're looking to be, to, uh, uh, if you're, as a Christian woman, if you're looking at this as an act of duty, then you're, you're going to become embittered. But if you look at this as an act of worship, as something that's fitting to the Lord, then you're going to be able to glorify God. The Christian wife strives to glorify God in her marriage by seeking the things above where Christ is. Amen? They seek Christ for patience. They seek Christ for humility. They seek Christ for perseverance. And let me tell you, Barbara's been seeking Christ for many decades now. She lives as a Christian wife, not out of duty, but as an act of worship, dependent upon Christ for all things. Knowing that when she submits to the divine order and design, that this is fitting to the Lord. And please don't forget that because of Christ's willingness to voluntarily submit to the Father's will, that Paul goes on in that same text in Philippians to say that the Father highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. So it is when a woman is submissive to God's order and design in her marriage that her husband will praise her, saying, there are many good women 
but you excel above them all. When you're being submissive, you're not being submissive to the man. That's ridiculous. You're being submissive to God's order and design out of a heart of worship because that's what's fitting to the Lord. And let me tell you, guys don't get off the hook. Let's look at what Paul says about living for Christ as a Christian husband. First of all, he says, husbands, love your wives. Now, the type of word that Paul uses here in this word love is agape love. Agape love does, is, does not refer to romance or brotherly love. Those are two other words. Agape love is an unmerited, gracious, consistently seeking the benefit of the person you love. A Christian husband is to love their wife graciously, unmerited, and consistently seeking the benefit of their wife. Agape is used to describe the love that is from God. The very nature of love is God is love. And that verse is God is agape. God loves the unlovable. God loves the unlovely. Not because we deserve to be loved or because we're any more excellent in what we possess. But he loves because it's his nature to love and he must be true to his nature. And this is what the apostle is saying to the Christian husband. You must love because you're the head. And you have to exhibit, you have to show your wife that you are trying to model who God is in your marriage. And I have to tell you, I've done a lot of premarital counseling and I've, I've never met a woman yet when I said, listen, let me just tell you what, what the scriptures say to the husband. And then I say to them, now do you have all that big of a problem with this idea of be subject to your husbands because it's fitting to the Lord? And they're like, no, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm all down for that. A man who will seek, seek, constantly seek the benefit of their wife above themselves. This is love, the Bible tells us. Not that we love God, because, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. And let me just say, this is love. Not that your wife so much loves you. Your love towards her is not conditioned upon her love towards you. You love because that's who you are. You're a Christian man. This type of love is the type of love a Christian man has for his wife. It's unconditional. It's unmerited. It's undeserving. No matter what I love. No matter what I agape my wife. And let me just tell you. There's a lot of times in my years of marriage that I haven't wanted to agape my wife. I'm mad. I'm frustrated. But the Holy Spirit spears my heart 
and says, you must be like God right now. You must be like the Father. And you have to love her. There is a former member here that moved away up the Stewart a few years ago. And on the back window of his car, he had a sticker. And it says, I love my wife. It's pretty bold. <laughs> he said he always got comments about that sticker. I <laughs> Listen, I'm not suggesting that you need to put a sticker on the back of your car so that everybody would know you love your wife, you agape your wife. But I do know there's one person that should know for sure that you agape your wife. And you know who that is? Your wife. Christian husband is to love his wife by sacrificing himself for her as Christ did for the church. The Christian husband is to sanctify her, cleanse her, nourish her, cherish her above everything else. My wife is my number one responsibility. Not my kids. You know why? Because those kids grow up and move away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But that woman, she's the one that I'll live my whole life with. She's my my number one responsibility. She's my number one relationship. Not my bros, not my buddies, not the golf course, not my race car. But my wife is my number one responsibility, number one relationship. And notice, after calling husbands to love their wives, Paul is being very honest and and do not be embittered against them. (laughs) Why does he say that? Because he's issuing this warning because it's very common for men to have this fleshly tendency of being embittered. Let me just tell you, when a man feels disrespected, when a man feels underappreciated by his wife, it's easy for a man to become harsh, and have an irritable attitude. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Ladies, do you know the number one thing that a man wants? And it doesn't start with S. The number one thing a man wants is respect. To be appreciated. If a man feels respected and appreciated, he'll die for the cause. And that's the way Paul says, if you will love your wife, if you'll seek me for agape love, you will not become embittered against her. What's a Christian husband to do when he feels this sense of embitterness? He is to seek the things above where Christ is. A Christian husband doesn't seek to love his wife out of a sense of duty, but he seeks to love his wife out of a heart of worship. Worship to God. We know love by this that a Christ laid down his life for us so we ought to lay down our lives for our wives. If God so loved us when we were unlovable and unloving so also we should love our wives. The Christian husband pursues peace with his wife because God pursued peace with me. 
The Christian husband seeks the grace of God through Christ so that no root of bitterness sprouts up in his heart causing trouble. As the head, a Christian husband is not to be a domestic dictator, but as the head, the Christian husband always takes the responsibility to make sure everything's okay. Everything's okay. Is everything okay? Are we good? Every good thing good? That's what it means to be a Christian husband. Then he moves on to living for Christ as a child. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I love passages like this because it shows the value that the Lord places on children of believers, children that were born to Christian homes. Paul is writing to the children of the church at Colossae because they were members of the covenant community. Paul talks to them in a way and speaks to them in the same way he has just spoken to adult believers. And this reminds us of this verse reminds us of the first commandment with promise. Honor your father and your mother so that it be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. But the Bible tells us and warns us that as time goes on, as the Lord tarries, children will become more and more disobedient to children. This is the course of the world. As time goes on, as the Lord tarries, children will become more and more disobedient to the Lord, to, to their parents. For all the young people that are here today, and I know we only have a few, need to understand that obeying your parents is not a duty. It's an act of worship. Notice Paul writes, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Why? For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. I know when you're obedient, you're well-pleasing to your parents. It doesn't, make, that doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Notice what Paul is saying is, is, listen, your obedience to your parents is not an act of duty. It is an act of worship. You are worshiping the Lord. You're being obedient to the Lord. And if you're struggling being obedient to your parents, then you need to seek things that are above where Christ is. As you struggle to be obedient to your parents, you need to realize that Jesus was a son too. And he wants you to seek him for the strength and the wisdom to be obedient sons and daughters. Christ was not rebellious, argumentative, or disobedient to his father. I can't find anywhere in the Bible where Jesus answered back to his father saying, Do I have to do that? I don't find anywhere. Can you imagine Jesus going, going up the stairways in heaven and slamming that heavenly door and yelling from his bedroom, I hate you. But it happens in our homes all the time. It shouldn't be like that. It's not well-pleasing to the Lord. Jesus was a son too. And he knows how to be an obedient son. So we should seek him. Jesus told us, I always do the things that are pleasing to my father. And he did it out of an act of worship. 
Jesus says in another place that his obedience to his father was a source of nourishment and satisfaction in his life. He says, oh, pleasing my father is food to me. And he desires for every child within a covenant home to receive the same nourishment and satisfaction by obeying their parents as a heart of, in a heart of worship. Then he moves on to living for Christ as parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Now, Paul here, notice he speaks to fathers. Why? Because of their role as the head of the household. But this instruction applies both to fathers and mothers. Mothers can exasperate their children just as bad as the fathers can. Amen? And this means, this is basically what Paul means when he says, in Ephesians, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. The idea here is that you're pushing so much, you're putting so much pressure on your kid to be good and to not mess up and to obey that they eventually lose heart. They just give up trying. I, I want to be clear about this. I was a rebellious kid, later, especially in my later teen, teenage years, Rebellion was written all over my heart. But I have to say to you, I lived in a Christian home that was very strict. And my brother, my older brother, was perfect. <laughs> and eventually it got to the point in my own sinful mind, I says, why do I even try? There's no way I'm ever going to be as good as he is. I basically left heart, lost heart. I gave up trying. Because all the rules were so much, so much, so much. It's easier to disobey than to obey. And Paul is saying a Christian parent needs to be really have a handle on the temperature in the room. We need to shepherd our children's hearts by nourishing them in the word. I know that majority of you in this service... You know, your kids are grown and stuff, but you can give this to your kids or your grandkids. This is one book. It's by Paul Tripp, Parenting. There's another book that he wrote called Shepherding a Child's Heart. might be a good Christmas present that you could pass on to help your kids understand how to be a Christian parent. As Christian parents, we seek to shepherd our children's heart, as Paul says to the Ephesians, to in the book of Ephesians to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But to do this, we, we must seek the things that are above where Christ is. We, we must seek the assistance of the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, and follow his example to be godly parents. You know who the best parent is? God. So when you're facing a conflict with your kids and you, and you know immediately what your flesh is telling you to do and what your flesh is, how your flesh is telling you to react, well, you need to just take a pause and you need to ask yourself, really, what, what, would, what would Christ do here? What did Christ do for me when I was rebellious, when I was disobedient? What did he do? He kept his hand on me. He didn't let me out of his... His, his, his oversight but he nurtured me and brought me along well 
we have to look at this living for Christ at work. Paul makes a shift now of his focus in living from living for Christ at home to living at Christ at work. And as I mentioned before, this is where we spend the majority of our time. Home and work is where we have the best opportunities to share our lives in Christ. Now Paul first addresses slaves and then masters. But it is interesting that when Paul is addressing slaves and masters, he does it on the basis of equality. Because he's already told us that in Christ there is no distinction between slave or free man, but Christ is all and in all. The idea is that there's no social hierarchy in the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? doesn't matter where we're at in the social spectrum. We're all the same in Christ. But because we live in a different social structure than in the first century, I will focus my comments on living for Christ as an employee and living for Christ as an employer or as a supervisor. A Christian employee or a Christian employer. Paul writes, and starting in verse 22, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord rather than man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward in inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Now this is the largest section in our text this morning. And the fact is, as you read those verses 20 through to 25, you don't need to be a theologian to understand what Paul's saying. He's basically saying that the, the, the Christian employee or slave should focus on their heart and they should do their work as an act of worship, not duty. Notice, he says, perform your labor as for the Lord rather than men. He goes on to seek the reward of the inheritance, not the paycheck. If for some reason, Paul goes on to say that you are unjustly mistreated on your job, you need to know that the Lord will administer the consequences of those injustices without partiality. Why? Because the Lord is our boss, not man. We do our work, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. Amen? It's an act of worship. I take care of my house. I cut my grass, I polish my car, I develop sermons, I write things, I, do, I blah, 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 blah. Why? Out of a sense of duty? No. Out of a sense of worship. Now, whether you like your job or not is not the point. The point is, is that all of us as Christians have a calling, a vocation. And there's been a lot written on this subject. The point is, is that your job is not what your focus should be. Your job 
is what your focus should be is on is your calling. And what's your calling? Whether you like your job or not, your calling is to do your work as unto the Lord. That's your calling. That's all of our calling. We do what we do as unto the Lord. Now, maybe you need a, a better job. Maybe you need to get out of the job you're at. That's a whole other issue. The question, though, is as a Christian, are you really doing your job as unto the Lord instead of as unto men? Are you doing your job as a sense of calling, as an act of worship, or are you doing it out of a sense of duty? Because you've got to earn a paycheck. Our labor should be an act of worship to Christ. And as Paul writes to Titus, therefore we are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, no thieves, but showing all good faith so that we will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. You know, um, let me just pause here for a second. I have a good friend who's really high up in the... um, Marriott hotel chain, he actually directs, he directly reports to Mr. Marriott. And he told me years ago that as a corporation, they were looking to, to hire um, people who coming out of the, the armed services before they would hire a college graduate. Why is that? Because they... They know how to take orders. They know how to be submissive. They know how you know to do their job, and they're not argumentative, and they really try to please their boss, and they, they they get it. They get it. Where a lot of times college graduates feel a little bit more entitled, and you know I don't really have to do. I'm smarter than you type of idea. Wouldn't it be nice if a corporation says, you know what? We'd rather hire a Christian. Because we know a Christian is not going to be argumentative. They're going to do everything to please, be well-pleasing. They're not going to steal from us. Because they're really working for God as an act of worship. Wouldn't that be refreshing? What a testimony that would be. Then lastly, living for Christ as an employer... Employers or supervisors are to treat their employees, Paul writes, with justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, Paul is not telling these employers to treat their employees with justice and fairness out of fear that one day that they're going to be judged by God. No, that's not the point. Notice he writes, knowing you too. And with this phrase, knowing you too, he's basically connecting the employer's attitude back to what he just said about slaves. Basically, the idea is that the employer and the employee, who are, if they're both Christians, are all serving the same master. They're all seeking to serve the Lord in their jobs. So Christian employers should also consider their job as an act of worship and treat their employees with human dignity without partiality. They should seek the things above where Christ is as they seek to run their businesses to supervise their employees. 
Well, brothers and sisters, a believer's focus should always be on Christ. That's the whole point. Whether in word or deed, we do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen? Whether a Christian wife or a husband, child or parent, employer or employee, we seek the things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We do not live our public or our private lives for Christ out of a sense of duty, but rather we live our public and private lives out of an act of worship to Christ who reigns on high. But the fact is, is we need help. We need help within our marriage relationships, our family relationship, and our work relationships. Oh, Lord our God, we come to this table thanking you for your love for us, fully demonstrated by sending forth your Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love towards the Father, for fulfilling all of his righteous demands so that we can rest in your accomplishments. Lord, we come to this table as needy people, hungry and thirsty for the things of God. Lord, we come to this table asking that through the grace that's found in Jesus Christ, that you will feed our souls, that you will quench our thirst, so that we might truly be spiritually nourished and live for you in our lives in our daily lives, Lord, in our marriages, in our families, at our jobs, Lord, that you would be seen in us and through us. Lord, minister to us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.